But as an owner, I have a hard and fast rule of how much you should pay yourself. And it is an amount that most people, when I tell them how much it is, their eyes go like that, their heads start to explode because they're like, there's no way I could pay myself that much. Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in Virginia. And I'm Willie Bidot, a lab animal specialist in California. Our guest today is Eric Miller. He is the chief financial advisor and owner of Econologics Financial Advisors. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you guys very much. Appreciate the invite. Thank you for being here. So first question, why is ownership so important in veterinary medicine? Well, I just think it's what's next for someone. You know, I mean, you look at as your confidence grows and when you become a DVM and, you know, you learn how to do certain practitioner skills and such, I think at some point in time, it just becomes natural to be like, you know what, I think I can do this on my own. And, you know, ownership would be what's next that next challenge that you have. One thing I do know about, you know, veterinarians, they definitely like to overachieve. So I think it's just that like, okay, the next step is for me to, to own my own shop and be in control of my own destiny to that end and see what I can do. And it's scary, of course, but I think it was scary when you decided that you wanted to be a DVM and have to go through, you know, seven years of school, but the result's always good at the other end when you go through it. Yeah, absolutely. And so with everything going on right now in the veterinary profession, do you still think ownership is a great idea right now for brand new practice owners? And then what are your thoughts on staffing in the age of the great resignation? So yes, with like seven exclamation points next to it on ownership. And, you know, the reason I say that and just from a financial background you know, ownership and veterinary hospitals are just a great investment. And if you get the buildings, they're great investments as well. So I think from just looking at it from an investment standpoint, the industry is growing. You know, I kind of look at the, the economy has like all these different money arteries and money is flowing towards these different industries. And veterinary medicine is certainly one where a lot of money is continuing to flow. So I think just kind of using that, it's like, wow, this is really a good business model. And even though there is a lot of consolidation going on and big groups seem to be buying a lot of smaller groups, there's always going to be a need for veterinary hospitals and practices. So I think it's a great time right now for people to get into it. The second question was on the great resignation, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I mean, once you get into ownership, now you almost become like, you know how like the coaches of football teams are recruiters. They're excellent recruiters. And, you know, you have to have that mindset. Like I have to go out there and really recruit good people. That just is a reality nowadays is like you have to be a pretty good recruiter. And if that's a skill, you know, but you can learn it. But I think more than anything else, you know, people want to come to a place to work where they feel acknowledged, where they feel like their help is needed. They feel secure and safe in their environment. I think as owners, if you can present your practice as a place that people can come to work, there's a good environment and the owner really makes sure that the environment is toxic free, so to speak, then you're going to attract good people. So I really wouldn't put too much emphasis on the whole great resignation thing. I think 
things tend to have a, a cyclical type of effect that at some point in time, you know, people are, are going to want to come back to work again. How's that? That sounds good. You know, with that mentioning, it's a good investment. So what is a good investment to you? What return of investment should I be looking at when I want to become a practice owner? Yeah. I mean, if you looked at veterinary hospitals and practices, like from an investment spectrum, and we'll just take like keeping money in the bank at the most conservative. Okay. <laughs> and then going to Las Vegas and gambling as the most aggressive. <laughs> so we'll go from zero to seven. Okay. I would say that owning a small business is probably like a five, a five or a six. There, there's still a lot of risk, you know, takes a lot of money. It takes, uh, well, it doesn't necessarily take a lot of money, but you are putting some risk out there when you start a small business. You just are. So it is a risky endeavor. But if I put a couple hundred thousand dollars into starting an animal hospital, and 10 years later, I'm able to draw cash flow from it and also be able to sell it for, you know, seven figures, man, that, that's a good investment right there. You know, that's a really good investment. But it is risky. It doesn't come without, you know, no risk. But I really think that it's something that if you understand the industry, if you trust yourself, if you have confidence in yourself, even if you don't have confidence in yourself, still do it anyway. Because you'll learn along the way. And as long as you, you know, kind of feel like you're on a bit of a righteous path and you learn some skills along the way, it's going to work out. Yep. You, you just have to take some risks. I yeah. like that. There is an element where you have to kind of jump off of the end of the board, so to speak, <laughs> and, and be willing to do that. I'm sure you guys have that reality with things that you've done successful in your life. It was like, I don't know if it's going to work out. I really don't. But I'm going to surround myself with people that maybe know how to do this. And I think that's really important is to align yourself with some veterinary owners that have done it, and they can give you some of the successful actions. And you're going to find that most of them are going to say the simpler things were the most effective things. You know, those things I think were more important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is a good point, kind of having good mentors. So if a new graduate veterinarian is interested in becoming a practice owner, what are the next five moves they should be making? Oh, man. Okay. Well, you know, number one, I think you have to understand the business side of ownership. So as much as you don't want to like understand profit and loss statements and the revenue side, like what does it cost to deliver a service? Like what does it really cost? What are some of those things that you would need to understand to run a business? Because a business does come down to some degree, you know, being able to have a profit margin enough where you can expand. So you have to know a little bit about the business side of veterinary medicine. I think that would be something that one should study for sure. You know, what does it cost? You know, what should my expenses be? What are the percentages of these expenses that they should be of my whole pie, so to speak? So I think just understanding the basic finances of how an animal hospital runs, I think that's important. Number two, I would learn some leadership skills. You know, some people that's inherent, but if you're going to start an organization, you are going to have to become a leader. And being a leader isn't like being a cheerleader or it's like telling people what to do because those are the worst types of leaders. Being a leader is like, I can have empathy for somebody else. I can see their point of view. I can get along with people because I have to like be in charge of other people right now and I have to be able to coordinate and cooperate. You know, that's important as well. 
So, you know, just kind of knowing yourself and developing some leadership skills, I think is a good move. You know, getting your own money right, because you are going to have to take some risks here. And quite frankly, you know, if you go to a bank and they see that, you know, you have tons of credit card debt and, you know, you haven't kind of kept your own financial house in order, that's going to be a bad indicator to them. And not only that, but you should get used to that. You should get used to trying to control expenses. You should get used to kind of running your own household like a business. So that way, when it comes time to actually run the business, I mean, you have some reality there. But, uh, you know, getting your own financial house in order, I think, would be a good move. And I think, Will, you had mentioned it, you know, certainly aligning yourself with a mentor who can help you maybe create a, a team, you know, because you're going to need a CPA and a bookkeeper and a business consultant, someone that can help you you know, along the way, you're not going to do it all by yourself. It's just going to be too much. And there's probably like six other moves that I can think of right now, but I think that's a good start. Those are great. I really appreciate the whole personal finance component to that because I do agree. If you want to start a business, you better have your own personal finances under control. Yeah, it's good to get the habits really in place right now. So, you know, okay, get an emergency fund, get control of your own personal debt. It doesn't mean you have to have it all paid off, but just be under control. Finances are a large part of just about being in control of things. And you know, another thing I would probably do, it's going to sound weird, but I would maybe take a sales course because you are going to have to learn to sell to patients. And that sounds weird, you know, like to a large degree, when you deliver medicine, you're trying to get agreement from other people, right? Like this is needed. And there's some tools that you can use to really help you get people to make decisions faster. Cause that's really, I think a key thing, like how well can you get people to make decisions? And that to me would be another skill that some things maybe you don't learn in veterinary school. Agreed. All right. Excellent. So I'm going to recap those five things. So learn about business, learn leadership skills, get your personal yeah. finances in order, find a mentor or mentors and take a sales course so that you'll be better with client communication. I think so. Any communication course that you can find that would improve your ability to communicate to others, because that's all this business is about, is being really able to be getting in communication with somebody and say, I care enough about you. This is what we need to do to make your pet feel better. But I can't do that if I'm uncomfortable in front of other people. You know, it's very difficult to do. And your staff as well, teaching them how to communicate. And it really doesn't take much, but it's really a key thing. Unfortunately, it seems to be a lost art nowadays. People just shout over each other. <laughs> well, yeah, and you're talking about selling your services, but you know, at the beginning, you have to sell yourself to a bank to get some money, a yeah. loan. And then at the end, you have to sell your practice. So it goes the whole way. It seems like everything is a bit of a sales transaction <laughs> in some sense. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to a couple of hot topics that are in the press right now. So inflation, and then the either current or looming recession, depending on how you look at it. And so right. with both of those things going on, how can practice leaders minimize the effects on their practice? You know, look, the effects of inflation are probably not going away. One thing I've learned about money over the years is that it loves speed. And when I say that is that when you get people to move a little bit faster than what they're used to operating, especially in a business, then that usually gets productivity to increase. So one of the things that I tell a lot of owners right now that are kind of nervous about, oh, my, how am I going to keep up with the inflation? I'm like, well, 
if the money value is going down, then we're going to have to increase our activity level so that you can produce more so that it doesn't have as much of an effect on you. Because it really is that bit of a simple equation. You know, if I use this example, it's probably a bad example, but do you really think Jeff Bezos cares if the price of milk goes from $2 to $4 a gallon? You know, it doesn't make a difference to him. Why? Because he has so much in resources that that doesn't affect him. So to that degree, the people that make more money obviously are not going to feel the effects of inflation as much. So to do that, you're going to have to increase your speed in which you deliver inside of the organization. So whatever you can do to cut down on things that take a long time to do and increase that productivity, you're fighting inflation that way because you're increasing your productivity. That to me is one thing that I would definitely look at as an owner is like, where can I cut down on the speed in which people get delivered to so I can see more patients? Like every patient that I see is worth $175 a transaction. So if I can just see an extra two or three a day, that may not seem like a lot, but if you spread that over a week period, it starts to add up. So these are all things that I think owners should start looking at is how do I cut down on the time to deliver my services? And that would be certainly one thing that you could do to fight inflation. You know, I think the people need to evaluate their prices as well. I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, a rise in prices, unfortunately, it's like one of those things. If staff wages are going up in a certain demand, what is an owner supposed to do to keep a certain margin that they need? Profit often sometimes gotten a dirty word. But if you really look at the derivation, like the root word of the word profit, it actually means to expand. And it's very difficult for an organization to expand and to hire more people and to market and promote if they don't have a profit there. So it is something that's a necessity. But I think, you know, the speed kills in money. And if you can really increase the productivity and get people to move faster, that's a great hedge against inflation. I know you had a second part of that question. I forgot what it was. Or was that the main question when it came to inflation? That was it, unless you want to add anything else about the minimizing effects of the recession. Yeah, I mean, look, I, this is another thing is that a lot of people are going to hear like we're in a recession. You know, that means that production is decreasing. Well, that may be going on outside. That doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to affect your practice at all. Matter of fact, I've seen the exact opposite happen. So one thing I like to say to people is like 99% of the financial condition that you're in is not because of external factors. It is an inside job. It is things that you're doing that are allowing things to be in the condition that it's in. So I would tell any owner, like, forget about the recession. You know, you have a chance for double digit growth every single year if you, you know, focus on how to market and promote and deliver your services quickly and well, and you have good quality control and, you know, you get referrals. I mean, these are all basics that you can do to get 10, 15, 20% a year growth. So I don't think veterinary medicine needs to worry about a recession. I know it sounds weird, but I'm <laughs> just so hot on the industry. I think it's such a great industry. Right. Great answer. Yeah, you know, increased productivity, that's something that we could probably hear every single day because it is so important. And it's a culture thing. You know, one thing I've, I've learned, you know, because there's a lot of talk about burnout. I'm sure you guys have heard that. And, and a lot of owners get a little worried that they think that they're going to run their staff too hard. Well, number one, make sure that you compensate them and acknowledge them 
for if they're working hard and they do well, you have to reward people when they do a good job. And I don't know that owners do that enough. A lot of them do. The ones that have really good practices, they definitely know how to do this. So they reward people. It doesn't take much to reward people for being productive. But I've always found like, I don't know about you guys, but like after you do a really good day work and you know you were busy and, and you got a lot done, my morale is really high. Like I don't feel bad. I feel good. Like, wow, we, look at what we got accomplished. I only feel bad if I don't think I got what I should have in exchange for that. So that's why if your staff's doing a really, really good job, make sure that you reward them. It doesn't always mean you have to give them more money. Maybe give them some time off. Maybe give them, I don't know, there's a lot of things that you can do to really reward the staff for a good job. But I think productivity and your morale go hand in hand. And the busier that you are, like the people that are idle, that do nothing, that sit on couches all day, and this is rich and poor, you know, are a wonderful study in psychosis. They really are. People that don't do anything are, I guess you could say, a bit dangerous because they're not really creating any kind of effect. And I found them to be the most loco, especially the richest ones, the richest people that don't do anything at all. Oh, my God. So, you know, with that, practice owners should focus on increasing productivity. So what does an individual veterinarian can do to minimize the effect of inflation and economic downturns on their personal finances? You know, again, I think that, you know, you can go to the owner and say, look, what can I do to get better at my skills so that I become more valuable to you so that you would entertain either increasing my pay or maybe paying me on productivity? You know, figure out a way, how is it that I can increase my income even by like 10 or 15%? You're not going to have success if you just go to the owner and say, I demand that you give me this money and I don't do anything in exchange for it. Most of them aren't going to like that, okay? And you don't really want to have that anyway. But there are things that you can do to make yourself more valuable. Maybe you show the owner that you're helping people and training people. And 90% of owners that I see, when they see that in somebody, they're going to reward that person. It's usually with more responsibility or more money. So that's one thing on the productivity side that you can do. You know, on the expense side, because obviously you have the income side that you need to increase your income and your productivity on the expense side, you know, I mean, unfortunately, you know, coming out of school with as much debt as some of these veterinarians have right now, I hate to say it, but the ones that I've seen that are most successful kind of still lived like students for a period of time afterwards. They didn't go out and buy the nice cars and the big homes. And I know it kind of stinks. That's the situation that we're in right now. But you do have to be mindful of those expenses and, and just make sure that you have a buffer between what your lifestyle costs and how much you're bringing in so that you have that buffer right there. It's very invaluable to do that. It's not an easy thing to do because, well, a household will try to spend every dollar that it makes and then some. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, absolutely. That's that lifestyle creep that we have talked about on some previous podcasts. Yeah, it is. It's it's an interesting thing. So this is, again, where you have to mask those expenses as creating reserves. You have to mask it as an expense so that it automatically is just going into those accounts, but you think it's something that needs to be made, right? And I think that's a very successful way that we get owners to actually create a profit because we have to make it an expense, as funny as it sounds. 
Okay, so on a previous call, we had talked about the different roles that a practice owner can play. And so can you talk more about that? And then how should a practice owner divide their time among the different roles? Yeah, sure. So the three roles are the practitioner role, the executive role, and the owner role. So the day that you decide that you want to become a practice owner, you now have to wear or understand those three roles because those three roles are what will determine your success in ownership. Uh, We'll start with the practitioner role first. That's the role, obviously, that you learned how to become a DVM, and it's the most comfortable role because that's you practicing medicine. And, you know, my advice there would be, be the best practitioner that you can be, you know, really make sure that your skills are at such a high level that you really feel like you deliver the best quality medicine out of anybody in your community. I think that's important to have that mindset. And then I would demand that of my associates if you have associates as well. Like when you become an owner, it's like, it's your standard. Like, this is what I expect from not only myself, but of my associates. So that would be the first role, really becoming the best practitioner that you can be. You know, from there is the executive role, which the executive role is just understanding, how do I get other people to get work done? That's it. That's all an executive does. And, you know, so many veterinarians, because you're so capable, they just end up trying to do everything themselves. This person can't do it. I got to do it myself. And that's a trap. So you know, really making sure you understand how to be an executive, which is I'm going to do this myself, yet I'm going to hire this person to do this, but yet I'm going to do it myself still. That's not an executive. An executive is someone that gets other people to get the work done and they can coordinate people. They give job descriptions. They create policy and procedure for the organization. These are all things that executives do. They don't do the work. That's what the staff does. They direct and they manage, and that's a skill. And they didn't teach you that in DVM school, maybe a little bit, but probably not most. And then the owner role is the visionary. This is the person that creates the purpose of the organization, the mission. They set the culture. Okay, guys, we have to be here at a certain time frame. And, you know, I don't accept negativity in here and criticism. You set the culture. And we're going to run a business that's profitable and expanding because that's beneficial to everybody. It's beneficial to me. It's beneficial to the staff. It's beneficial to the community because I want to be here for a long period of time to serve this community. And I want to expand because the bigger that I get, the more patients that I can help. You know, that's the mindset. It isn't, look how much money I can make. That's hardly ever what I see for most owners. It's like, oh, it's all about the money. Okay, it's usually got into it because they wanted to help patients. But those are the three roles that you have. My advice to most people is you'll have to learn all three of them when you first start out just because that's the way it is. But really decide which two you like the most. Like you can be an owner practitioner and hire really good executives or be an owner executive and then make sure that you hire multiple associates so you're not having to treat, you know, all day long. So just know yourself. Okay. Like, I don't know about for you two. I mean, do you guys like doing the practitioner work more or do you like the executive work more? I mean, I guess I'm curious about that, but, uh, executive on my side, (laughs) I started out liking the practitioner role better and then transitioned to the executive. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Right. And I will tell you that the value of the business is going to be 
predicated upon how well you are as an owner and an executive, not as a practitioner. Because you only get so much, there's only so many bricks you can lay in a day. And as a practitioner, there's only so many patients you can see. So the real value that you bring to the organization is your ownership and your executive functions. Or hire really well to do those two things or the executive role, then you got something. So hopefully you have a successful and profitable practice. How do you think practice owners should structure their own compensation? I think that most owners dramatically undercompensate themselves <laughs> right now. And I say that because, you know, you see a lot of burnout. You know, you hear that term a lot in the industry right now. You hear burnout, I'm burnt out. And I usually see that as a symptom of you put forth a lot of effort and energy in doing something and you're not getting the exchange back for that. And that's why people get burnt out. I would too. I mean, imagine like if you were working 15 hours a day and putting notes in and having to call people back. And then, you know, you look at your bank accounts and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, where's all the money at? So that does have a draining effect. So you have to learn how to compensate yourself for your owner and your executive functions. From a practitioner standpoint, I think most people just pay themselves like a W-2 salary. So if you're an owner, you know, I see a range of anywhere between 80 to 120,000 they pay themselves as a salary if they do practitioner work, maybe some production as well, but that seems to be a range, I guess depending on where you're at too. You know, as an executive, you know, you can take like a management compensation of some kind and I usually let that person determine what percentage that would be of profit. But as an owner, I have a hard and fast rule of how much you should pay yourself. And it is an amount that most people, when I tell them how much it is, their eyes go like that, their heads start to explode because they're like, there's no way I could pay myself that much. And the amount is 10% of the revenue of the business should be paid to yourself as an owner compensation. Not 10% of the profit, 10% of the practice revenue right off the top should be taken as your owner compensation. Now that money doesn't get spent at the household level on boats and cars and, and those things. That is for you to create other income sources outside of just owning the business itself. Because I'm sure you guys teach people like, you don't wanna be reliant upon your wage for the rest of your life. You wanna create other income sources. And that's a good idea. But when you get into practice ownership, you want to accelerate it down so it doesn't take 30 years to do, right? Like, I don't want 30 years till I'm 65 or 70 years old, and then I could possibly retire. As an owner, you have the ability to accelerate the process down, do it faster. And you do that by taking that first 10% to do that. Now, most people can't do it right now because the business isn't used to it. So you can't start that much, but you can build up. We could probably do a whole podcast on exactly how to do that because there is a way to do it, but it is magical what happens when you get that in. It's like the, one of the most successful things that I've ever done with practice owners is showing them how to do that. So in summary, 10% of the revenue for other investments. Yeah. And there's a lot of questions people have around it. Like, <laughs> well, how is that tax? How should I take it out? What's my accountant going to say? What's my practice manager going to say? You know, what's my family going to say? Forget all the considerations about it, but just know that the first 10% should be able to go directly to your household for the express purpose of creating other income sources that aren't correlated to your business. 
and where that money goes and how it's invested, that's, that's kind of a whole different thing as well. But just that act right there, could you imagine if you start doing that day one of practice ownership? You'd be done in seven to 10 years. You'd be done, you know? And it's a marvelous thing when you really get it in. So Eric, did I just hear a, a fast track to fire for practice <laughs> owners? <laughs> well, I don't know what fire means, but... Um, Financial independence, retire early. That's exactly right. Yeah, that is the key right there. If you can do that, if you can get that in place, like it does so many things to the organization when you start to implement that. Number one, you're going to find people that are against you in the organization because here you are putting a necessity now. I'm putting this expense in that the organization needs to make. Okay. Now it happens to be for my benefit as the owner, but look, I took all the risk. You know, I put this thing here. My name is on all of the mortgage notes. I am the one responsible for this organization. If someone gets sued, it's on me. You know, I had to go to medical school to learn how to do all this. I had to learn how to be a practitioner. You, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to give permission to owners to love themselves enough to pay themselves this 10% because most people don't think they're worthy of it. And I find that probably the most heartbreaking part of working with practice owners is that feeling like they're not worthy of the compensation, you know, for whatever reason. Maybe too many staff members told them that they're all about the money. Maybe patients did the same thing. So, you know, I try to build people up so that, that to see how worthy they are of that money. But Meredith, you are absolutely right. If you want to get done in seven to 10 years, that is the method to do it. Now, you can't be a dum-dum with the money and put it in places that go backwards and you have to know how to invest in all those things fairly well. But yeah, that is a, a bit of a magic pill right there. All right. Amazing. Okay. So what is a common financial mistake that you see practice owners making? Well, you know, I think I have like a signature talk on this, like the three or four original sins of ownership decisions that they make. Number one is that they treat their practice like a job rather than an investment. And, you know, they do that in so many ways, right? It's just a place for me to go to work, but I'm not really utilizing the practice for my benefit and the cash flow for my benefit. That's probably the biggest mistake. They don't treat their practice like an investment because, you know, look, you see the multiples out there. You see what these practices are going for. If you get your EBITDA in a range of 15 to 20%, you're going to have something that has a high value. But if you don't treat it like an investment and you just treat it like a place I go to work and your margins are low, then the value is not going to be very high. That's a big mistake. You know, that costs you a lot of money. I think another mistake is that people think that the financial system that we all live in right now was designed for your expansion, and it really wasn't. It's designed to extract wealth from you and for the benefit of somebody else, unfortunately. And I think the quicker that you can learn that, the more that you'll put in or have a plan to kind of handle the effects of what the actual, we call it the default plan, which is to trap people, trap people with too much debt, trap people into only putting money in like one area of investment, trap people into, I don't know, all kinds of crazy things. But that would be another decision or thing that I would say to people. And then I think the third original sin is, you know, having people around you or having the wrong financial team around you that doesn't understand not only your industry, but how your practice works. 
because there's so much cash flow that goes through a business. And if you're not working with people that understand how that works and how to make sure that you're getting a percentage of that or a piece of that, there's so much money that goes through a practice that gets lost. So, you know, making sure that you have a good financial team. I had to learn this the hard way because as a financial advisor, you know, I was trained to like, hey, how much money do you have for me to invest? And I'll charge you a percentage for that, right? And that was my mindset when I first started being a financial advisor. And then I had the epiphany moment where I was like, if I really want to help practice owners and veterinarians, I got to know something about their business, how it works. You know, how can I show them how to improve the value of it and utilize it better? And then I found just how much lost income gets lost, just goes into like the ether because no one's showing them how to utilize it very well. So there's three right there. I'm sure there's one more, but. Those are some three good ones right there. Yeah. So, <laughs> so this is something I really like to hear. I'm not a practice owner, but you hear this so much and it's just like, I don't think it's that easy, which is what is an exit strategy and when do you start planning for it? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. At some point in time, we're all going to die. <laughs> we don't know when. So you're going to have an exit strategy one way or the other. But when you decide to open your business, I would start thinking about how do I want to transition? Now, hardly anybody does that. And I understand it. I don't know that I did. But at some point in time, you do have to think about how I call I like transition better than exit because with a transition, you're keeping the business in some way, shape or form continuing on. And you're just going to replace yourself out of there and you're either going to transition out to maybe an associate or maybe a competitor, or you know, a corporation. Those seem to be the three options right now as an owner, but it's something that I would start thinking about because you're building your business to transition at some point in time. Now, you don't want to do it too early, but you certainly want to start thinking about how you want to do that. I don't care which way you go, but I would definitely make a decision on what you think is in your heart and what's best for you and your family and the community. I just wouldn't make it a decision based upon me you do have to start thinking about your staff. You got to start thinking about your patients, your community, and the other owner. You want to make it so that it's easy on them. Because the goal here is that the business continues to treat patients at a high level, right? Isn't that the goal to transition? So the business can continue on. So you do have to give some thought to it. But those are really the three main exit strategies, Willie, is like you can sell to like a local competitor. You could do an internal sale to like an associate or maybe a manager, or you could sell to, you know, one of the big corporations. Mm -hmm. And as far as when, so you mentioned kind of at the beginning, but then you have to take under account, you know, family members, a community. So yeah. what is a, a good time frame? Like when you should start thinking about transitioning? Yes. Well, you know, I don't want to depend upon the sale of the practice for all of my retirement income. So I would definitely be diligent to know like, okay, with what I've currently created outside the practice in that magic 10%, right? <laughs> and what I'm going to get for the practice, I marry those two together. Is that going to be enough for me to live the life that I want to live? All right. And that number is different for everybody. I've learned that, you know, for some people is $20 million. For some people it's $3 million. Okay. But whatever your number is, you have to know what that number is because it's really going to be a function of those two things. 
the value of your practice and your real estate and what you've currently invested outside of that. Is that going to produce enough cash flow for you to live the life that you want to live? Not like a scarce, just getting by, right? Like you want to live. All right. Good answer. So you mentioned the different types of transitions that practice owners can make. And so what are your suggestions for practice owners who are starting to look ahead to that transition, but they'd rather not sell their practice to a corporation? Okay. So maybe a competitor or, or an associate then, mm-hmm. that type? Okay. Well, let's see. Number one, I would make sure all my finances are in order. So make sure that your profit and loss statements are up to date. Make sure that your balance sheet's up to date. Make sure that the finances are in relatively good shape because that's the first thing someone's got to ask for when they ask about your practice. And if you haven't done a valuation recently, it'd probably be a good idea to have someone come in there and definitely let you look at the practice and give it a value. So if I'm going to sell to a competitor, that's definitely one thing. I'm going to make sure I get my finances in order, make sure that I have an inventory of all my equipment because they're going to ask about that. Make sure I can print off all my production reports of all my associates and so they can see the numbers there. Make sure that you know if I own the building, there's a favorable lease agreement in place because you may want to keep the building and just have a rental income paid to you. Obviously, make sure all your client lists and all your patient records are in good shape. The compliance as well, you know, you're not on probation or you're not being investigated by, you know, the board or, you know, just things like that. I mean, just making sure that the investment is nice and shiny. You know, if I'm going to sell to an associate, I want to make sure that this person that I'm selling to is someone that I, it's almost like a marriage. Like I'm on the same page with this person. Like we have the same viewpoints on money and business and family and medicine. It's almost like getting married and you're aligned to that degree. And then I would make sure that I teach that person how to be a good owner. Like, cause that's what they're really going to have to know. And that's what they're going to be nervous about. Cause that was what you were nervous about when you started and then you learned. So you're going to have to impart that knowledge on that person. And it may take a couple of years. So just be willing to do that. And my gosh, write up your successful actions, write it up in like a little hat that you can give to somebody, you know, because that needs to be captured. That's like intellectual capital. And that needs to be captured. Like what were all the successful actions of how to deal with people, how to deal with patients, you know, write all that up. I know it seems like a lot of work and you don't have to do this all at once, but those are some things that I would definitely do. Especially if you're going to sell to an associate, I would venture that you're going to have to do seller financing for that. If you're not sure what that means, that's basically where you're the bank and that person's paying you, you're carrying the note, so to speak. So if I have a $2 million practice that I'm going to sell to my associate, he's not going to have, or she's not going to have $2 million sitting in their account. And they're probably not going to be able to go to a bank and get that much. So you're going to most likely have to carry the note. No problem. I taught this person well. I taught him about finances. I taught him about money. That's, that's, that's the runway of teaching that person how to be a good business person. And that lessens the chances that there's going to be a default on you. So you can control it to that degree. But I would probably start off maybe selling them 25% to 50% just to start off with. And then, you know, you can do that as well. There's all kinds of things you can do. Okay, so in that note, Let's say the scenario where you do want to sell to an associate or even your staff members. Yeah. uh, And you can offer 10, 25%, whatever that number. But what are methods to offer equity on the clinic? 
Well, you know, it all depends on the situation. You know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. One of the ways I got equity in the company that Cohen right now was sweat equity. So you can actually grant ownership to an associate. And if you feel like it's warranted, again, I, I would not go run out and do that unless that person was definitely there and contributed to the overall enterprise value, not just what you paid them for, because they already got paid to do their DVM work. You don't need to compensate them for that. It's the other things that they brought to the table. They were really good leaders. They were there when you needed them. Whatever the reason is, but you could grant them ownership, and there's a method to do that. You can gift it to them. You can grant it to them. I know those sound kind of interchangeable, but they're very different from a tax perspective. But that would be one method, or you know, have them buy in, you know, you get an appraisal and maybe you discount the amount because, you know, hey, the appraisal came back at $2 million. 20% of that would be what, 400000 I'll give you a discount of 100000 for 300000 right? And then I want you to help me build this thing up to $3 million so that we can sell it for $6 million. So there's all kinds of things you can do to incentivize the person but you just got to make sure they're not in it just for an extra paycheck and they're just going to think that they're just going to go home like from nine to five. That's a mistake because you have to turn over some ownership duties to that person right now because now they're an owner executive as well. You see what I mean? So mm -hmm. look, I've seen partnerships go well and man, I've seen them go into a dumpster fire, you know, <laughs> and the dumpster fires just are bad. Oh, they're so bad. Yeah, I'm sure you guys have seen that as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have. <laughs> so these are all things that need to get prevented. And then, oh my gosh, most certainly do not do anything on a handshake deal. Make sure that you have written agreements that are drawn up by attorneys and CPAs review them and the attorneys review them. And if the person has to get their own attorney, that's fine. Uh, but make sure that you have operating agreements and member agreements, and all these things written up so that any contingency can be looked at and there's a solution for it. I can't stress that enough. I've seen, <laughs> I won't even tell you. <laughs> I'm sure you guys can imagine. All kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so if I'm an associate and I'm interested in owning part of the practice, how do you recommend starting that conversation with the practice owner? Well, I think I would precede it by being a really good employee, like someone that is there that enhances other people around him, that tries to solve problems that even maybe you're not responsible for, but you just become like a really solid employee because they will see that. If they're a relatively sane person, they see like, wow, this person is really like, you know, he doesn't give me any pushback. You know, they work hard. You know, she's always on time you know, she helps when she's not asked, you know, those are things that you can do. So then when you do go to the owner and say, look, I'm interested in either ownership or something. I mean, it's going to be much more well-received, I think, by the owner at that particular time. Because the owner's going through their own trials and tribulations. And I know it sometimes feels like the owners don't always listen well, and they don't sometimes. But there is a lot that goes into ownership that stresses people out. So sometimes you got to give them a break. But I would just become a really good employee that can solve problems without having to be told all the time, like a robot. Like, I just don't need orders all the time. I can do things self-initiative. And then it's going to be easier for you to go to that owner and say, you know what? I'm, I want to become an owner. Uh, I'll do what it takes and start the conversation that way. 
Okay. And how do you know how much to sell your practice for or how much to buy it for? I don't know if there's a hard and fast rule of that one right there. I, I mean, are you asking how do you know how much to sell the practice for to an associate or just in general? Yeah, and you kind of went over it earlier when you said bringing in an appraisal yeah. for the practice. Yeah, look, by and large, your business is going to be valued at a, a multiple of your earnings, like your profit. Okay, now there's certainly other factors that are involved, but I would say that makes up a majority of what the value is because whoever's going to buy you, especially if they're going to need debt to do it, they're going to have to go to the bank. And the bank is going to need to see that there is free cash flow there to service the debt. Okay, and if a bank sees that there's not free cash flow there, it's going to be very difficult for them to approve the loan. You see? So the margins are important, but other things are very important as well. The brand, you know, how about your social media presence? That's really important. Your staff, are you an organization that has like a ton of turnover or do you have relatively low turnover and you have some key executives that have been there for like two or three years? That's going to add a lot of certainty. The whole thing with buyers is they just want confidence that if they acquire this thing for a certain dollar amount, they're going to be able to get their money back, right? So that's just how a buyer's going to think. And they need that confidence by the way the organization is set up. And, you know, do you have policy and procedures in the organization? Or is it the wild, wild west where everyone just does whatever the hell they want to do, <laughs> you know? So those are some of the things that I think will allow a business to sell for a higher multiple. But yeah, an appraisal would come in and there's, you know, veterinary appraisers out there that, will go in there and do a full appraisal. And they're going to look a lot at the production reports and the finances and all those things. Yeah, and I'm sure you can help. So what is the best way for our colleagues to get in contact with you? Well, for us, you can go directly to our website. It's econologicsfinancialadvisors.com. I did just write a book, How to Become a Financial Beast. And this was something I wrote specifically for private practice owners. So I believe we have a website out, how to become a financial beast.com. I think that would take you directly to the book. It's going to get launched here in about a month. How can I get a signed copy? I'll, uh, I'll make sure. <laughs> well, maybe we I come back on and we can promote the book again. How about that? <laughs> if you guys think this was good, then we can come back and I can go through a couple of chapters and it's a lot for owners, but you know, I will say, because I've always had the idea that I would like to do more for associates because I think Associates, when they understand what it takes to become an owner, like what the things that they should be doing to become valuable to the owner, it may just change some of the ways they think about money and how they interact because it doesn't need to be adversarial. It really doesn't. Now, again, there's some terrible owners out there. And unfortunately, I think they give a lot of the other owners bad names, but there's also a lot of really good owners that care about their employees. And I think that if DVM's coming out of school, like knew what they needed to do. Because the end goal, if you want to become an owner, man, is like there, there's some things that you got to go through, you know, and some things that you need to do to get prepared for that. And maybe we can all collaborate and come up with something. Who knows? All right. So a ton of great insights today. And so that brings us to our last question, Eric. What is your best advice for our listeners? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Look, the formula to financial success, I don't think is that hard. You need to know how to acquire money. You need to know how to control it. And you need to know how to expand it. And those are, we just, I call it the ACE triangle. And money doesn't need to be made. 
You just need to know how to acquire it, right? And like I said, $50 billion is spent on veterinary medicine every single year. So you don't need to make the money. It's already being spent in this area. You just have to know how to acquire it better, okay? And then you have to learn how to control it. So you have to know how to control money, allocate certain money in certain accounts, know that you can't spend more than what you make, know that you do need to have a certain amount and know how to control it. And then when it comes to expanding money, making sure that you don't put your money in places where it gets lost or it can go backwards or, you know, bad investments. So, you know, that's probably my best advice. Just understand those three simple principles and I think you'll do okay. And stay away from people that I call them financial destroyers. They're the people <laughs> that constantly tell you to relax, you know, your activity level's too high. They do it in really kind of weird ways and that you may not always catch, but just be careful about who you're hanging out with because that does have an impact on your finances as well. So that's two. Sorry. I can never do just one. <laughs> All right. Excellent advice. So we've got acquire, control, and expand. Yes. Right? And then it's all about who you hang out with. Certainly making sure that you're hanging around people that like to be productive and that aren't just like idle and kind of a drain. The people in your personal life that are always having all the drama and they kind of suck you into it. You have to be careful of your own space. And you know what? As you grow, especially when you get into ownership, you're probably going to have to let some people go, right, in your vicinity that just can't handle your success. They just can't handle it. So I actually have a whole chapter of this called the resistance wave. When you decide that you want to do something that's going to expand yourself and your net worth or your own, like, well-being, you are going to get resistance, you're going to get opposition, and you're going to get criticism 100% of the time. So just knowing that will allow you to kind of push through that and identify the people that are doing that against you. So that's kind of some financial advice that most people don't think is financial advice. It's not, hey, pay yourself 10%, but it does have an effect on your overall condition. Mm -hmm. Well, Eric, Absolutely. thank you so much for the insight on practice ownership. We greatly appreciate it. I can't believe we got through 15 questions. My <laughs> gosh, you guys. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right. Amazing. Thank you. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe to our podcast and to review us on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.